As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Unite them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and those who followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city, they were stirred. And they asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this Palm Sunday, and we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Have you ever had an experience in your life um, or have you ever encountered a time when your own personal experiences or your opinions or your ideas um, seemed like they were somewhat disconnected from what was going on in the rest of the world? Like everything you're hearing on the, on the TV and on the news and on social media, it's all going in one direction, um, but you seem to be heading in a different direction or like you can't relate to it. Uh, for example, uh, since about March of 2022, the economy has been a steady decline, verging on recession. All of our bankers in here can tell you about that, I'm sure. The once blazing housing market uh, has cooled off, went to almost freezing overnight, it seemed. And every article in the news was saying that things are bad and things are terrible and that they're gonna get worse. But there's an interesting report that was put out uh, that surveyed people about their thoughts on the economy and their own personal reflections uh, on their finances. And it was no surprise where on the one hand, everyone agreed with these general kind of themes, these narratives about the, the world writ large, that everything in the economy was terrible and the world seemed to be on a doomsday path. But on the other hand, it was interesting that very few people reported that any of that was true for them personally. Yes, everything is bad in the world, but, but not very many people said that it was bad for them. The, the economy and finances are awful, but, but they're not terrible for me. Derek Thompson uh, talked about this in one of his podcasts last year, and he called this phenomenon, he coined it, uh, the everything is terrible, but I'm fine theory. And it was just this reflection that sometimes uh, there are these stories in the world that might not reflect the everyday experiences, particularly that there's a, a separation between perspective, between the way we view the world, and between our own personal experiences. And when you dig into the data, it actually makes sense that most of the people reported that they particularly, them personally, were fine, because in January, the unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, which is the lowest since 1969, the lowest unemployment rate. In 2022, the, the GDP, 
Our gross domestic product fell slightly below its high at the end of 2021, but now it's back up to all-time highs. There are disconnects between the world around us and the stories that we are telling. Think about your own life. Yeah, maybe you're frustrated about the price of eggs, but how many of you in your own lives, in your own family, the people you talk to are in some state of existential dire straits as the narratives in the headlines would lead us to believe. This is not to demean or dismiss anybody who is actually feeling the pressures extra hard these days. My aim is not to minimize anybody who has had a job loss or is feeling financial strain. Those things are real and they do happen to many of us at different times in our lives, but rather to illustrate um, that when we take these macro snapshots of the world, when we try to make sense and tell stories on these grand global scales, there's often a disconnect between the common perspective of everybody and our own personal experiences. There's a great book about this, came out in 2018 called Factfulness. Maybe some of you read it. And it was a, a, it was a book about how the, there's 10 things people say are terrible about the world that are actually much better than we realize. They're different than the stories we tell when you dig into the data. The authors write, it turns out that the world, for all of its imperfections, is in a much better state than we might think. That doesn't mean there aren't real concerns. But when we worry about everything all the time, instead of embracing a worldview based on facts, we can lose our ability to focus on the things that threaten us most. Just this past week, Thompson wrote something about this, about this disconnect between personal experience and the stories that we tell. He said, in 2016, researchers coined a phrase, the majority illusion, to describe the way that very online people grossly overestimate based on their little internet bubble, the popularity of various ideas. Have you ever experienced that yourself? Whether it's from the curated news feed of your social media or just the people that we surround ourselves with, that everything seems to be heading in a certain direction, that the stories have to be universally true because everybody is agreeing about them. Whereas recent researchers call this majority illusion, it is not something new. This way that we kind of get wrapped up in narratives that we hear or stories that we tell. Dan Gilbert, a Harvard professor in psychology, wrote back to Thompson saying, social psychologists have been calling this false consensus for nearly half a century. And it turns out the internet is just a, a, a better avenue for creating false consensus, for creating this, uh, this consensus of, of a microcosm, for making everybody believe that the world is a certain thing. It breeds and spreads much faster with the technologies that we have, but it's not new. There have been stories and sensational ideas that have been overwhelming people for a really long time. And the reason is because stories, the things that we tell ourselves and things other people tell us, like stories like the world is ending or the, the economy is in free fall or the insert scary headline here, stories are powerful. Stories, when they have an emotional resonance or a personal touch point, when they are politically charged or when they could potentially impact everybody who hears it, stories like that, they draw a crowd real fast. Stories that make us scared Stories that make us excited, they bring a lot of people together to believe that this thing has to be true in a way that almost nothing else can. 
And nowhere else is this more evident than on Holy Week in the Bible. We, like many churches, refer to this Sunday as Palm Sunday. It's the day we read the text we just read about how Jesus came in and the palm branches are waving and the kids are shouting, Hosanna. We typically read that version of the Bible, that text from one of the gospels every year. But the lectionary actually refers to this Sunday as Palm and Passion Sunday. The lectionary, if you don't know what that is, is this calendar that preachers can use to go through the Bible in three years with their preaching texts. And so a lot of churches around the world will use this prescription every week. We use it during times when we're not in a series. We lean on the lectionary on days like this, high holy days or days where we haven't crafted some sort of series around it. And it it is interesting um, that the Bible describes, I mean, the lectionary prescribes that the biblical reading should be all the Palm Sunday texts that we just read and all the passion narratives, the stories about Thursday and Friday. I don't know if the idea is that we read it all in one service, that'd be a lot of reading, or or if that we as preachers are supposed to pick between uh, the two. I, I wonder, I don't know this for sure, if maybe the lectionary started prescribing this as Palm Passion Sunday Um, because less and less people make it to the Thursday and Friday night services. And so if that's the case, if you come to church on Palm Sunday and you don't come again until Sunday of Easter, you hear the Palm story and hear the Easter story, but you miss the passion of Christ entirely. And so maybe we work some of this in on Sunday so that we make sure that everybody knows that something really important happens this week. I don't know why they decided to prescribe both texts for today, but I do know that both texts work really well together. The Palm Sunday texts, the Passion texts, these readings go well together because they both tell us stories about crowds. They both tell us about these crowds that are swept up in emotion. You have the Palm Sunday crowd waving their fronds and you have the Good Friday crowd. Both crowds are wrapped up by this overwhelming sense of consensus that everybody's hearts are on fire and they're all agreed in the same direction. Both crowds are wrapped up by the stories that they've heard about Jesus. But in neither of these stories do we have an account of anybody taking time to stop and think about what is going on. In the text we were just reading a second ago, Jesus comes in on a donkey to some pomp and circumstance, right? Maybe you've been part of this age-old conundrum of is it a donkey, is it a colt, is it both? Because none of the, all the gospels, they tell a different account of whether it was that. Because in the one we just read, it's a donkey and a colt. So I've always kind of wondered, is like Jesus got one leg on one and one leg on the other? You know, I I don't know, how, how does he come in on donkey and a colt? I'm not really too concerned with that. What I'm more concerned with and interested in is that it happened, I'm more interested in the fact that Jesus, riding in on what is considered typically a lowly animal, came into the capital in the most unlikely takeover ever. I suspect uh, that the wave of emotion of the crowd there, it clouded the people's ability uh, to ask, why is Jesus coming in on this way? Uh, Were they able to make sense of how his coming in this fashion was a statement of who he is and who he was telling the world that he was going to be? 
His entry into Jerusalem in this fashion is not only a testament of who he is, it's a reflection of who the current leaders are not, right? Traditionally, when conquering figures or kings, they would come back to the capital or they would return home. They would come in on a great horse. They would roll out the red carpet. There would be rose petals thrown and a parade and and there would be trumpets and feasts and it would be this big fanfare. The king has returned and the whole city celebrates. But when Jesus comes in, the true king, it is in a much different fashion. It wasn't on some noble steed. It was on a donkey. It wasn't red carpet. Uh, It was people's clothes. There were no rose petals. There were palm fronds, which are the most ordinary plant that there are. And the crowd went wild because about who they heard this guy to be. Everyone was wrapped up in the excitement and they couldn't stop the wave. But then Jesus didn't do what he was supposed to do. The crowd had all this energy because of who they were told Jesus is supposed to be. He's supposed to be this great overthrower who's gonna come in and make everything all better for the Israelites. He's gonna kick out the Roman government. He's gonna, but Jesus came in and he didn't go to Pilate's house and kick him out and take over to Jerusalem with his special God powers. He didn't go up to Herod and, and give him everything he deserved for any injustices that he had committed. He, he didn't even hold a big press conference or sign a declaration of independence. Instead, (laughs) he walks up into the temple there in Jerusalem. He first gets there, and the first thing he does is curse everybody (laughs) and tell them that they're wrong. And he flips the tables, and he tells them, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of robbers. And I'm sure people love that, right? Being told they're wrong by the person they thought they were supposed to be following, right? For the days after his arrival, he doesn't do what he's supposed to do. He teaches in parables and riddles and doesn't always make a whole lot of sense. He even tells people that they're supposed to pay their taxes. Jesus, coming in, is supposed to take over the government, right? He's supposed to be establishing a new world order. This is their savior, their Messiah. And he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay your taxes. That doesn't sound very much like the takeover of the government, does it? And after a couple days of Jesus not being who they thought he should be, the tide started to change. That groundswell began again, but in a very different direction. So much so that by the end of the week, from from Palm Sunday today, just till Friday, Jesus was brought out in front of another crowd. And there was probably even more people there actually because the Passover was into its celebration and the town was packed out. And I bet the story of Jesus was burning through that town like wildfire all week. They had heard about who Jesus was, but they hadn't seen these things for themselves and they had all these expectations. But if he was supposed to be a king, he certainly wasn't acting like it. The crowd that shouted Hosanna on Sunday changed their song on Friday from king to kill. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And I wonder 
If there had been a reporter in the crowds from, from, the, from the Jerusalem Times, right? If they had gone up to any random person in that crowd on Friday and asked them a question like, what are your experiences with Jesus? What makes you want him crucified? What has he done that you think he should die on a torture device? Would anyone in that crowd be able to say why he deserved it? Would any individual in that crowd be able to say that their personal experiences with Jesus lined up with this grand sweeping narrative that was taking over everybody? Would their own lives match the headlines that he should be crucified? Or I wonder if anybody took the time to stop and think. Did anybody, if they had have stopped and asked some questions, would they have said, like, wait, wait, wait a minute, what are we doing? This man is innocent. He's literally done nothing wrong. Could they have convinced others in that crowd that he did not need to die? Or is the power of false consensus too strong? And it wouldn't have mattered what any one person said. I don't know if anybody was able to stop and think about it back then on Palm Sunday or on Good Friday. There's a lot happening and a lot of emotions that people were just swept up in. But I do know that we are able to. I do know that that is what we are doing this week, today and every day. When we stop and think about the events that began almost 2,000 years ago on that first Holy Week, we realize why we put so much effort into telling the story every year. Why we put eight worship services in one week. <laughs> because everything about this week is incredible. I mean, think about it. Jesus rode in as a servant, not a warrior, to establish a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. It is a kingdom unlike anyone that the world has ever seen. And so the people, they didn't recognize it and they didn't know who Jesus was and they didn't believe him when he said the things he did about the kingdom of heaven. While trying to convey these things to all those that would hear, the people all turned against him. They plotted against him. He was set up by the religious authorities who should have known him best, the people who went to school and trained to recognize the Messiah and to know the signs of the Savior, they're the ones that plotted to have him killed. And then his best friend, one of his 12 people there, betrayed him, turned him in for some silver. And then every one of his other best friends there, the other 12, they all abandoned him and left him alone to be tortured and killed. And yet, in spite of all of that, the most amazing thing happened. With all the crowd there witnessing Jesus on the cross, with everybody there who was probably there on Palm Sunday and probably there on Good Friday, there walking and then witnessing the raising up of that wood that same crowd there before him, watching him in agonizing pain, heard this with some of his last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
I mean, the crowd had been so swept up. Jesus said, God, they're not stopping to think. Forgive them for what they do. I can't think of anything more amazing than that. Of anything more Christ-like than that. Of anything more miraculous than that. That the crowd of people who turned on Jesus was offered forgiveness from the very one they abandoned. There, hanging on the cross, he said, I know what you've done, and even still, you are forgiven. I couldn't be more grateful that the same is true today. The same is true for each of us as it was on that first holy week. There are plenty of times where we are this Palm Sunday crowd with smiles and the kids and the palm branches, and we love to say, yay, Jesus, we are Christians. We follow the Lord, and we'll tell anybody who listens. But then there are other times in our lives, and maybe sometimes without even recognizing it, that we turn our backs and abandon Jesus entirely. There are other times in our lives by our words, but often by our behaviors that we deny Christ, that we deny that he is our savior, that we abandon him like those disciples did. And yet, even when we do that, you know what Jesus does? He doesn't say, you should have learned your lesson by now. He doesn't say, too bad, you messed up. He looks at this crowd and he looks at everybody in it, each person, and says, you are forgiven. In spite of what you've done and no matter what you've said, the good news of Holy Week is that you are forgiven. And it's those stories right there the stories of Palm Sunday, the stories of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday, and especially the story of Easter that I hope becomes the biggest wave to overcome this world. I hope that by our actions and our words that the whole world is swept up in the good news that they are forgiven, not by the news of fear, not by the worries, but that the whole world would hear you are forgiven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.